Thank you. Good morning. If you want to turn to where I am, it's in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. That's where we are this morning. You all look so comfortable, you really do. <laughs> Nothing like today. I see the medieval festival is on at the castle. I just read a novel written by an historian who sets his novels in the time of King Henry VIII, that sort of time, 1349 or something. I don't know whether that, strictly speaking, comes in the medieval period, but I tell you what, he's true to life as it was then and facts, although he puts a novel there, but I wouldn't have wanted to live that uh, those days, that's for sure. So it was interesting that we celebrate it now, wouldn't it? We wouldn't want to be anywhere near that time of year. Anyway, you want a verse to take in the week? Take into this week, here it is. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. I'm reading from verse 7. David had at least two major things that he wanted to do, and God says when he served his, his generation, he died. Two things he wanted to do. One was to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the centre of the people of God. It had languished on the edge of the land in the time of King Saul. He wanted to do that and he could do that. This comes at the end of having done that. The other thing he wanted to do was to build a temple for God. He didn't get to do that. One thing he could do, one thing he couldn't. That's a mixture of life, isn't it? But we're reading a psalm, basically a psalm, encouraging his contemporaries to praise the Lord after the Ark of the Covenant has come back into the people. And it starts in verse 7. That day David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. Give praise to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings, do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. 
Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, God our Saviour. Gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Very uplifting stuff, isn't it? And on a day like today, your heart just sings for joy, doesn't it? I don't know quite what farmers may be thinking of it. The farmer behind us is collecting in his corn. So I guess his heart is singing. It's all dry and it's all going to be nice and hard underfoot. Most of us are, aren't we, thinking of the good things. On a day like today, it is easy to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his love endures forever. But bad things happen to people. And sometimes when people want to help folk, who are going through a hard time, they say what we now call a platitude. They want to say something, they don't know quite what to say, so out trots this phrase that doesn't do a lot of good. Let me know if you need anything as you walk away, hoping that they're not going to call, perhaps, because you don't know what to do anyway. It can be seen as a platitude to someone struggling or even grieving in pain. Well, everything happens for a reason is another one, isn't it? It doesn't help you much, does it? When you're going through something, everything happens for a reason. Well, that may or may not be true, but it's not very helpful at that moment. Someone has defined a platitude as a trite, meaningless, prosaic statement often used as a thought-terminating cliché aimed at quelling unease. Platitudes have been criticised as giving a false impression of wisdom, making it easy to accept falsehoods. A platitude, says this person, is even worse than a cliché. But the truth of the matter is that normal life includes joy and sorrow, ups and downs, health and illness, success and failure. At any given moment, in any random group of people, and we would be a random group of people, some or maybe all of those things are represented at any given time. So some people can hear me say, go into the week saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever, and they take it as the word of encouragement that I intend it should be. But others may think, if you knew what I was going through, Charles, that is just a platitude. It means nothing to me, because how can God be a God of love and how can his goodness go on forever when this is happening to me? And that will be true across our nation, in churches, people hearing the word of God and thinking it is just one of those thin platitudes that are just spoken out to make us all feel good for five minutes. But when we go back to the rough end of life, 
it just evaporates. Well, let me remind you that although David has just done one of the things he really wanted to do, it didn't work out first time, did it? Do you know the story? The first time he did it, they moved the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, didn't they? Which they weren't meant to do, but he didn't know that. And so Uzzah put his hand out to stop the ark falling off the cart when the oxen stumbled. And God struck him dead. And David was angry and distressed by that because his whole hope had come to nothing. So this comes on the back of something bad happening. But he still can say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. All scripture has a context, but there's also a, a motivation behind it. Now, if you're someone who reads through the Bible from beginning to end, I nearly said chronologically, that wouldn't be true, would it? But anyway, from cover to cover, you'll no doubt have got to Chronicles, having read through Samuel and Kings, and you can't resist the kind of thought, I've just read all this. Why do I get it again? And you move sharply on, especially the first nine chapters, which are a list of long, unpronounceable names. Well, the, read, the writer of the book of Chronicles, whoever he may have been, had a particular purpose in mind in writing it. The book of Kings and its prequel Samuel has a message. And the books of Chronicles has a message, but they're not answering the same question. The two big events that shape the lives of the Jewish people are the exodus at one end of their lives and the exile at the other. The exodus is a miraculous, wonderful event that they will celebrate every year that they can do, delighting in God's goodness. The exile is something, the last thing you want to do is celebrate that. It's a disaster, a calamity, a catastrophe of epic proportions. Now, when they go into exile, and initially spend time in exile, they are completely undone, they are bewildered. Psalm 137 captures the tone there. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion while in a foreign land? So they're distraught. And the books of Kings and Samuel answer the question, how did it get to be like this? How did it be that we end up in Babylon as captives? What about the promises to Abraham? What about the promises to David? What's happened to all that? And the book of Kings records the history of the people and says, this is why. The answer, of course, the answer is that the people are the problem. God has not failed his people. You read those books carefully, you will discover God has not failed the people. The people have failed God. They're the ones who let him down. The covenants were dependent on the people being faithful to God. So the books of Samuel and Kings answer that question, how did we get here? But Chronicles answers another question. Now we are in exile, and now we're back travelling to the land because the exile came to an end. 
But they go back to a land that's been devastated. The temple has been destroyed. The city has been destroyed. It's a wasteland. The question they're asking is, is there any hope? Is that the end then? We may be back in the land, but is there any hope? And anyone who has a problem, an issue they're wrestling with, a situation they're going through where they find it hard to believe that God is good, his love endures forever, want to hear that there is hope. They don't necessarily want to know how that will come about. They want to know there is hope. So at about one o'clock today, lots of, in lots of families, the table will be laid with knives and forks, and maybe even spoons and forks, if you're lucky. And what that does is convey hope to all the other people who are not actually making the meal, that a meal is on its way. Isn't that true? It conveys that truth. So the chronicler is writing the story again, but from the perspective of helping people to see that there is yet hope. The kings will leave you really depressed, because this is this downward spiral of one thing going wrong after another, one king after another. All the Israelite kings were bad. Most of the Jewish, Judea, the kings of Judah were bad. And it just goes down. But the writer of Chronicles writes the story again. And he wants people to see what God has been doing. So that's why it starts with nine chapters of names that you and I all skip over. Because what the chronicle does is said, yeah, this all started way, way back in the day of Adam. That's where the story began. And as you trace those back, if you were a Jew, you'd be able to put in the history of all those people. It would encourage you. You would hear again the stories of your history. So those nine chapters were not overlooked. They were devoured. But then what happens is in chapter 10... The chronicle gets to the story of the united monarchy. And from this point on, he will not tell you much about Israel, the top ten tribes that went into exile in the days of Assyria and basically have disappeared. He will tell you most of all the story of the two tribes at the bottom, Judah and Benjamin, who went into exile into Babylon. So his focus is not on all the twelve tribes, but on the two that were more faithful, the place where God had chosen to his name to dwell. He's going to pick it up. So the rest of that genealogy focuses on David. Saul and David. Saul was a king from Benjamin and David was a king from Judah. And so the first chapters after those genealogies focus on David alone. And this is the part from 10 to 21 in which our part comes. It focuses on David. And the story is told of the ark coming into the city in 2 Samuel. But if you were to read 2 Samuel's account and 1 Chronicles' account, you would find them to be very different. The essence of the thing is the same. But the first attempt goes wrong and it's basically the same in both books. But in Samuel it simply says God, that David got angry and fiddled around a bit. But then he got it right, he did a bit of other things, and then he went right and they brought the Ark of the Covenant in and that was fine. And you're not told any more. But when you get to Chronicles, you have a whole chapter telling you how it went wrong in the first place. 
Then another chapter. And then a third chapter, chapter 15, where it tells you how they did it right the next time. And what you have is the emphasis. What David has to do in chapter 15 is he goes to the Levites and says, what on earth do you think you were doing? We were meant to bring the ark by hand. You were meant to do it, and you didn't tell me. You let me put it on an ark, on a, a cart, when all the time it should have been carried on your shoulders, shouldn't it? Way back from Moses. So you get David understanding the reason it didn't work the first time was because they didn't do it right the first time. They did it wrong. You didn't get that in Samuel. It doesn't explain that. It just says it went wrong, but eventually went right, and we carry on the story, because he's telling the story of how it all goes bad. But the chronicler wants us to know how they can live today. So he says, this went bad because they didn't do it right. And what was the right thing to do? It was to focus on doing it the right way. In other words, the expression of worship to God. God has told you how to do it. And by doing it his way, it is an act of worship. The focus is on the Ark of the Covenant. Then the story goes on from chapter 22 to 29 where the chronicler joins the story of Solomon into the story of David. They don't really overlap, but he's making them overlap. He's bringing them together. And this is the bit where David really wants to build a temple, but God says, no, you're not going to build a temple, your son is going to build a temple. So if you read the Chronicles account, you'll find a huge emphasis in terms of space as God explains through the chronicler how David and Solomon get it together. If David can't build the temple, he's going to make all the preparations for building the temple and then will hand it over to his son who will have the responsibility. In other words, the building of the temple is no small event. Build your houses, build the temple, build a garage, build a shop. Not like that. Build the temple. This is the most important thing to do. Why is that? Simply because in Old Testament days, the temple was where God and man met. It was the focal point for worship. That's why they had to come to Jerusalem and come to the temple. Not that God was not anywhere else. Of course not. He was in a desert with Moses. He doesn't need a temple in that sense. But he, God chose to give them a physical place. And then you move on in 2 Chronicles to the story of Solomon who builds the temple. So by the time you've got David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and then David and Solomon discussing and arranging how it will all be done and then Solomon building it, you've got a massive chunk of Chronicles 1 and 2 all about the Ark and the Temple. The focus is entirely on that. And then the last little bit of 2 Chronicles simply records the story of Judah to the exile, reminding them how he got there. But the story, for example, of David and Bathsheba is not in Chronicles. You'll find it's in 2 Samuels, but it's not in Chronicles. Not because the Chronicle doesn't know that David did an appalling thing, but because he's not telling that story. What he's telling the story of to the exiles who are coming back is how can they walk right with God? And what's his attention? He says, worship him. 
Let your all-consuming desire be to worship him. This is your first, second and only responsibility to worship God. If you worship God, everything else runs out of that. But if you don't, it doesn't matter what you do or how you do it, it will not work and it will not please God. And in the end it will all come to ruin. So when, they, when Solomon builds the tabernacle, builds a temple, sorry, and, and brings the ark into the temple, he encourages the people and says, the Lord is good, his love endures forever. And when he dedicates the temple, a little while later, in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, you have the same phrase, he is good. His love endures forever. Three times this chronicler has this verse at each point as the ark moves closer to the centre and as the chronicler is trying to encourage the people to worship God. So when someone like me stands up in front of people like you and people like you might include people who are struggling with things and you hear me say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. This is no platitude. This is no thin phrase. The Lord is good. He loves endures forever. We give thanks because the Lord is good. And if you look back at an history, and this chronicle, of course, is a Jewish man, and he's telling the Jewish history, and we have that whole history for us to read, but even going back in our own history, and our history goes back, well, at least 2,000 years, we say the Lord is good and we look at the cross it's what we've been doing earlier on my heart was singing with all these songs and things because this is just the same thing isn't it as we focus on that we think that God is good from time to time life is not good bad things happen to people but the Lord is good nothing crushes that and his love endures forever doesn't it his love endures forever because what people think is they put the two together. Because this bad thing has happened, therefore God must be bad. But that's to put two things together that don't belong together. Isn't it? Who's responsible for sin? We are. Way back in the garden. And I'm not pleased, don't hear me say, everything that bad is happening is because of the sin of the person involved in I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, sin's root as far as humanity is concerned, way back in the garden, it's our responsibility. We cannot blame God for that. So you have to keep those two things clear. And that is what worship does. Doesn't it? As I focus on God and worship God and let God be God. This is what Jesus was speaking about. It's not about worshipping God on this mountain or that mountain or in Jerusalem or any other city. God is seeking worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, worshipping him as he wants to be worshipped. And it's no mistake that the last book in the Bible gives us glimpses behind heaven. And in chapters 4 and 5 we see all of the created order adoring God. There's more to it than that, but it's a temple-like picture to people who understand the temple and all that it meant. It's not that we will all sit around in circles around God's throne, adoring him forever. That's not what it means. What it means is humanity's greatest desire and longing and yearning is to worship. Because we are created to worship. And God says he is the only one worthy of it. And of course, on the throne you have not only the Lord God, high and lifted up, but the Lamb. 
looking as if it had been slain. And as you go through chapter 5, you find that it's the Lord who's worshipped. And by the come to the end, it's the Lord and the Lamb who are worshipped. So to worship Jesus is the highest calling of any person. And as we do that, we will give thanks to God. On a day like today, easy to do. Not so easy when it's pouring with rain and you're on holiday with three children in a caravan or a tent or something like that. But nonetheless, we give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He is always good. And his love endures forever. So that phrase, it, you will know it, it's in the other Psalms, isn't it? It's about three or four Psalms have that phrase. Because it is a good one to take into every week. I give thanks Lord, because you are good. I don't give thanks for this sin. I don't give thanks for this breakdown of my car. I give thanks because you are good. And your love endures forever. You are still good in the midst of that. And as we focus on him, everything will be fine. The story will unravel, of course, in the day after Solomon's son takes over the kingship. It's already begun to be unraveled. And why? Because Solomon took 300 wives and 700 porcupines as one child put in their answer to that question. It would have been better for him. Yeah, they would have been better for him. I must remember that. It would have been much better for him. And they, they turned his heart away because they brought with him their idols. And the scripture says they turned hearts away. The moment he stopped focusing on God, it all starts. And this is the richest man, the wisest man, the man after Adam who had everything handed to him on a plate. But because he was turned to one side, it all came to dust. So my friends, as you go into the week, this week, whatever it holds for you, and I hope it holds lots of joy and delight and pleasure. I hope it holds lots of exciting things you want to do, but ordinary life includes things you'd rather not do, and sometimes jolly difficult things and things will go wrong, we know that. But through it all, we can give thanks to God because he's good and his love endures forever. And if you need any proof of that, just go back to your scriptures, pick a psalm, take it with you. Because David here lists all the things. And some people keep in their pocket a little cross. Have you seen one which is slightly quirky? It's called a holding cross or something where you can hold it in your pocket. And just to remember... One person I knew, uh, a pastor I knew, I was meeting him in his room and um, he opened the, I said, what have you got in the top drawer of your desk? Just being inquisitive. You know, it's always quite revealing what people have got in their top. He said, just, just four things, he said. A piece of wood and three nails. That's all he had in his top drawer. He said, when I get too big for my boots, I open the drawer and hold those. and put them back in my place. He put four things back in, I thought, that helps me to thank God because he is good and his love endures forever. And he had the nails and a piece of wood to prove it. Let me pray. Father, we have delighted to sing your praise this morning and to enjoy words that give us the vehicle whereby we can say, thank you, Lord, for you are good. And your love has endured to reaching us and staying with us. You have loved us and you love us still. 
and we are deeply grateful and we give thanks to you Lord and as we head off into this week whatever it may hold Lord will you so fill us with your love pouring your love abroad into our hearts by your Holy Spirit will you hold before us the cross of Christ not as some ancient emblem but as the greatest symbol of love anyone could offer anyone else and will you fill our hearts with joy and delight that you are our God and we are your children and nothing can change that so Lord because you are good and because your love endures forever may we constantly sing your praise and give thanks to you Father Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.